Father in heaven, we're grateful for this time we have to spend together. We pray that you would bless our understanding, that you would help us in every way, Lord, to to see clearly how we may bring people to decisions for you and then train them to be disciples uh, who will not only stay in the church, but who will be active in your service and, uh, and love you and lead others to you until you come. So bless our time together with your spirit, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So we're going to talk about baptismal preparation and discipleship. And I have to um, mention, confess right from the start here, that this can be a sensitive topic. Um, the reason that it can be a sensitive topic is because people have different views on what we should do to prepare people for baptism. Um, you go to certain areas of the world, um, certain areas of the North American division, and they will say that um, if someone says they want to be baptized, then you should baptize them. I mean, next week or whatever. Um, There are some places uh, where they take them through one to two year programs and they won't baptize them until (laughs) they get through those one or two year programs. Um, So I'll tell you my philosophy, which I believe because of my own conviction from reading the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy myself, and that is that we should baptize people, we should not baptize anyone until they are ready, and we should baptize them as soon as they're ready. So what that means is if somebody is in the middle of a one-year process and yet they've studied all the beliefs and they are committed to them, then don't need to wait till the end of the year, put them in the water. Because that decision, you might lose it. Um, On the flip side, if someone says they want to be baptized, but they're not quite sure they want to adopt the beliefs and practices of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, then we should not, at that point, be baptizing them. That's where I'm at, so that's what you're going to hear in this particular Um, seminar and of course there are you know the uh, the details matter and so what exactly are we talking about what are the areas that we try to get decisions on and what are the areas that we don't care about getting decisions on those are things that um, different people may view differently but I'll tell you that the convictions that I've come to are based on what I have explored in the inspired writings So I may be wrong about them, but that's where I'm getting them. And that being the case, you know, um, it's possible that you can come to, like like, let me just say it this way, as a Seventh-day Adventist um, layperson giving Bible studies, even at that point, but then especially when I became a pastor, you have to wrestle, when you're somebody who gives Bible studies, If you don't get Bible studies, you never have to wrestle with this. You just have to say what they should or shouldn't be doing, right? But when you have to study with someone 
and, and tell someone, yes, they're ready to be baptized, or for your own sake, say, yes, I'm going to baptize them, then you've got to grapple with what's right. And some people are very cavalier about it. They're like, well, you know, it's, what's the end of the world, whatever. I just am not that way. I don't want to be cavalier about it. I want to know, like, am I, am I going too far if I ask him to make this decision? Or am I not going far enough if I don't require this decision? I mean, those are the things that went through my mind as someone who gave Bible studies. And so that's why I wrestled through it. And I wrestled through, um, you know, the information that we have as a church on the matter. Now, one thing I'll say is that there are some who are strongly moving, um, and I'll just say that I know that there are some who have this strong conviction here in the North American Division, that the way that we have historically prepared people for baptism, in which we've been very careful and made sure that they understand and practice what Seventh-day Adventists believe and practice, um, that that is based on tradition and that it's not biblical and the and the rationale is that we don't is that we don't see that specified in scripture what we see in scripture and and what is used are certain instances in the book of acts such as uh you know the ethiopian philip and the ethiopian and the fact that after showing him, explaining to him the way of truth, then they went and he was baptized. Um, and then there are places in the book of Acts where they appear to be baptized somewhere in the near you know, future after hearing and accepting certain aspects of the truth. My argument is twofold on this, okay? And this is just my conviction on it. Number one... Uh, we cannot make arguments from silence. So what I mean by that is, because we don't have in these scriptural accounts an actual full record of everything that went on in the conversations and what have you. I mean, if you read a lot of accounts in scripture, you see a conversation that takes about 45 seconds to read, right? Well, it probably wasn't 45 seconds. There was probably more to it, and we don't see that So it's not that there is an explicit prohibition to prepare people for the baptism in the way that we historically have, but they simply don't see it uh, uh, specifically commanded, and therefore, because it's not commanded, they call it tradition. I believe that's sort of an argument from silence, number one. Number two, and the primary reason I feel that it is an argument from silence, is because as Seventh-day Adventists, once we accepted the prophetic gift of Ellen White as genuine and as a fulfillment of the remnant church characteristic of the testimony of Jesus Christ at the end of time, once we did that, we now consider in our hermeneutical or interpretive method, we consider the inspired evidence of the spirit of prophecy and and compare it as well with what we're finding in Scripture. And since we don't have a lot of explicit information in Scripture on it, we let the Spirit of Prophecy inform us even more. And so because of that, I don't... Because here's the thing. There could have been a lot more that was said and done. And then, and then what are we going to reject what is written in the Spirit of Prophecy so that we can 
make a speculative decision based on what we don't see in Scripture, I don't think that's a safe position as Seventh-day Adventists. Another aspect is that we're in a totally different environment than they were at the time of the book of Acts. Let me be clear. Most of the people that were baptized in those uh, examples would be people who had some prior knowledge to biblical truth. I mean, the main and in some cases exclusive difference was accepting Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And once they accepted that, then they were, you know, ready to be baptized. Whereas, think about our history. The history of where we stand today is so different than the history in biblical times. Because we have now Daniel chapter 7 and 8, and Daniel 8 tells us that there would be this period of time in which the truth would be cast to the ground, and uh, he would cause, in Daniel 8.25, deceit to prosper. So we have this period that we commonly refer to as the Dark Ages, where many traditions were brought in to replace the truth, and all manner of error, such as the things that we commonly correct in our evangelistic campaigns on death and hell and the secret rapture and you know going straight to Christ instead of through a priest, and all these things... Uh, were and now today evolution and everything else these were all uh, things that happened over the last couple of thousand years that have greatly polluted what people in this world think about their worldview and about God and about the Bible so when you are studying with somebody today and they say yeah I want to be baptized because I read that he who believes and is baptized will be saved they don't know what they're talking about now, some of them might, and if they do, and they understand everything that the Bible teaches, it won't take any time at all for them to be prepared for baptism. You're going to walk them through it, and they're going to be, oh, I know that. Oh, yeah, I see that. Oh, yeah, I've studied that. And boom, 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 and you're going, wow, you're ready to be baptized. But that's not generally how it happens. No, instead, we're correcting things that are previously held views because the world is so splintered and divided in terms of what they believe today. So we have those different factors weighing in. One, we have some, uh, what I would call, ambiguity about what actually happened in the period of time, in the conversation, prior to the baptism, in the experience. Number two, even if it happened exactly and without any other conversation, it could be that there was an understanding that, was, that was made them ready in that situation that we would not be ready for today. And number three... We have the spirit of prophecy to help give us some insight into the best way in our setting to prepare someone for church membership. Was that sufficient? Okay, good. All right, so let's talk about baptismal preparation, and I'm going to take some time to look at the inspired counsel that we have from the spirit of prophecy, because this is what I did to kind of dig in and see where I want to go on this. Okay, evangelism, page 311. Hold on to them. <laughs> Not in there. Evangelism, page 311. Before baptism, there should be a thorough inquiry as to the experience of the candidates. I'm underlining words that are important. They're all important, but these are things that I want to draw out. There should be a thorough inquiry. Now, what's an inquiry? Okay, that's questions. Okay, and what's thorough? 
It's complete. It's making sure that you ask sufficient amount, right? Let this inquiry be made, not in a cold and distant way, but kindly, tenderly, pointing the new converts to the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. What's kindly? Okay, so, so we just read thorough inquiry, right? How did that feel to you? A little cool, a little cool. But then we read, let it not be in a cold and distant way, but kindly, tenderly. What's tender mean? Gentle. So if you're gentle with someone, and, and we're talking about spiritual matters, and we're talking about conversation, we're not talking about touching, right? What are we talking about? What does that mean? Your voice, okay. Not an, interroga not an interrogation. Okay, that's good. What is it? What do you mean? What's an interrogation? What does someone feel when they're being interrogated? They're intimidated. Okay, they can feel guilty, but um, they're being accused. Okay, what is the purpose of an interrogation? Yeah, it, there's is 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 the idea of an interrogation that if it works out, they get a big bowl of ice cream. Or something? Is that it? Like if you answer right, it's gonna be... no. It's that if you answer wrong, right? So what is then the purpose or intent of an interrogation? It seems to be more to find out if there could be something negative that you're going to dish out to this person, right? So the idea of kindly and tenderly in my mind is number one: you want them to get the right answer, right? You want to help them get where they need to go. You're not there to tag them out. You're there to help them along. So kindly, tenderly also means that you're dealing with things that are very sensitive. And by the way, so that you know, there's a reason why. When you give Bible studies to people, there's a reason why, like the Apostle Paul refers to it as, you know, I'm your uh, spiritual father. It's because there's something about it. You know, you can have conversations with people and bond with people on all manner of things, you know, your golf game or your whatever. But when you have the privilege of talking to somebody about scriptural things and about their decisions for Christ, you're talking about something that is more intimate than anything else you can think of. You're talking about something that makes a person exceedingly vulnerable. And you're in a position of, dare I say, power or authority. Not that you are taking the stance of being authoritative, but in the sense that you are in a position that, of, of teaching or leading or guiding. Okay, And because of that, tenderly means you're dealing with pride. You're dealing with uh, habits and addictions. You're dealing with all kinds of things that, man, they're, they are sensitive. And so tenderly means you're just going to be really careful to make sure that person knows that you are there to help them. That's why you're there. You're there because you care about them. You're there because you want to see them 
get to know Jesus in the same way you got to know Jesus when He came to you just as you are, all filthy and everything else, and showered His mercy on you and helped you to at least get to the point you are today, which it may not be where you're going to be, but it's not where you were. And you're happy about it and you want them to experience the same thing. It's a positive experience. I just can't overemphasize that the idea of preparation for baptism is actually to help your brother or sister along. It's, it's, a, it's a help that you're trying to do. When you find out that somebody has got an addiction or something, what is the, what is the stance that you take? The stance is to help them, right? right? That's the entire purpose. And I would say this, for many people, they are not prepared for baptism when you start the process of studying for baptism. And it's actually through your time with them, preparing them for baptism, that they make those final decisions to be uh, connected to Christ and, or surrendered in some area of their life or what have you. You follow what I'm saying? So you're actually helping them to experience a fuller experience and uh, conversion to the truth, which is a precious, precious thing. So kindly, tenderly. But notice this last sentence. Bring the requirements of the gospel. Whoops, I skipped that. Or I, uh, yeah, pointing the new converts, by the way. Shouldn't skip it. To the Lamb, of Lamb of God. So in baptismal preparation, your whole point is to connect them to Christ. Okay, Your whole point is to help them see there's somebody who can help them with any challenge that they have. So that's, that's the point of any Bible study, but especially when you're bringing them to these final decisions for baptism. Now, bring the requirements of the gospel to bear upon the candidates for baptism. Okay, first part, bring the requirements. What does that mean? That there are some requirements, okay? According to inspiration, there are some requirements. And you're to bring them to what? To bear upon. That's not language that you use a lot today. What does that mean? You're bringing the requirements to bear. Say it again. You apply them, okay? Make them feel the weight. Um, you are basically saying um, you're not going to just mention the requirements. You understand what I'm saying? You're going to keep working with them to help them come into harmony with the requirements. You understand the difference? Because I've done that. I've, early on in my experience when I would study with people and I would go through a little baptismal preparation process and it, it would be about making sure they know things. Right? So we would study the topic of tithe, for instance. And I would say, so, you know, we'd go through and I'd say, so do you understand that? And they'd be like, yeah. Okay. And then we move on to the next thing, right? But then I learned <laughs> from looking at treasury records and such that that didn't always uh, pan out. So now I recognize the value and the importance of when I'm studying with them. Then I'll say something like, um, is that something that um, you've been able to start experiencing? And then they have to kind of, you know, that's why the whole tenderly comes in. <laughs> because you actually are wanting to bring to bear the things that you're wanting them to make a commitment about. And so when you're saying it, you want to make sure that you're helping to find out where they are in the actual applying of the things that, you, that you've now taught them that they know. Because a lot of people will say that they know it and, and they're 
not practicing it. And that's not what you mean by know it. <laughs> you understand? Now, it's not uncommon for people to make a decision while they're being prepared for baptism, right there in your presence, and then not do it. Do you understand? But you are not the FBI. Okay? So, I'm not telling you, you know, that you have to go scour and, you know, whatever. Now, personally, as a pastor, I may check things and see because it, a lot of these things, we don't think of it this way, but they're spiritual issues and they have to do with the health of a person's spiritual condition. But there is a sense in which you need to uh, leave somebody, you know, if they are professing that they are practicing something, then you need to leave it with their conscience, you know, unless you stumble upon the reality that that's not happening. But in essence, what I'm saying is you... You know that that may happen sometimes, but you are just bringing them face to face with the Lord and helping them to make that commitment. Okay? So, this is a really important quote. Uh, it had a lot of good stuff in it, didn't it? Just in that one quote? Yeah, we're just getting started. Pastoral Ministry, page 164. The test of discipleship is not brought to bear as closely as it should be upon those who present themselves for baptism. It should be understood whether those who profess to be converted are taking the name of Seventh-day Adventist or whether they are taking their stand on the Lord's side to come out of the world and be separate and touch not the unclean thing. When they give evidence that they fully understand their position, they are to be accepted. Now let's pause for a second. What does this mean? What's evidence? Me. Something you can see, right? Or there has to be something that some evidence is proof. It's it's something you see. Um, so even though, let me let me be clear about something. When you're preparing for someone for baptism, there's three areas that you are concerned with. One is the condition of their heart. Okay, this is paramount because if the condition of the heart is right, everything else will be right. So if the condition of the heart is right, now what do we mean? How do you understand the condition of the heart? Well, you can't read the heart. Right? You can't see the fruit of it. And one of the things you can see about the heart is, are they like interested in spiritual matters? Do they, are they enjoying reading the Bible? You know, I mean, are they coming to the meetings? Are they, you understand what I'm saying? That's heart issues. There are people who sometimes will present themselves to be baptized because they heard from so-and-so and so-and-so that they should be baptized in order to make sure they're in heaven, and they're not coming to anything. You know, they're not actually like studying and interested, and, and, and that's where you need to probe a little bit more and make sure they understand the nature of the commitment that they're making, that it's a reflection, a symbol of being baptized of the Holy Spirit and having a new love for spiritual things. And so, you know, you're kind of watching the heart. You want them to love God, to have a growing love for God and His Word. The second thing that you care about is their mind. You want them to believe in harmony with what the Bible teaches. So all those doctrinal, fundamental doctrinal teachings that run the risk of causing great harm if you believe erroneously, you want to make sure they believe in harmony with that, right? What happens when you die? 
uh, you know, things that have a, a picture, uh, paint a picture of, of God that would be unfair, like the uh, understanding of hellfire or salvation being something where you have to go to a person and before you go to God or whatever. All those little understandings of doctrine, you want their mind to be clear on the fundamental teachings of the Bible. The third thing is the life. Because ultimately, the life is where you discover the condition of the heart. And this is something that people really uh, get confused about. So let me pause and tell you what I mean. What happens when you don't address the life, the habits of the life? People will say, hey, why are you doing that? Why are you making a big deal about that? That's an external matter. Well, do you know that the best way to the heart is to deal with the external matters? In other words, some people never get to the heart. They just assume, oh, this person passionately loves God, even though they're doing this and this and this. You can just see the love. You can just see how you know, they talk about Jesus. And I've had many people who have said that. You know, I, if they're doing this and this and this, I'll still baptize them as long as they are passionate about Jesus. Well, how are you determining that they're passionate about Jesus? Is passion by expression? Is passion by your, your tone of voice? Is passion by excitement? What is passion? What is commitment? What is faith? It is not characterized by those things. Because people have different personalities. People have different reactions. Okay? And we simply cannot tell someone they are fully committed to God, passionate about God, just by what they say. That's why we have these areas of expression, of obedience to the express will of God that we teach about and then encourage people to make decisions about because if they're not willing to yield in the practical areas of their life, then it says something not necessarily about their life, but about, guess what? Their heart. And some people have never come face to face with Jesus in, in, and allowed Him deep into their heart because no one has ever challenged them on the areas of their life. You follow? You know, uh, you all know this. You run a, an evangelistic campaign and everybody's there and they're praising Jesus. And I can't believe this. I haven't heard preaching like this my whole life. I never hear preaching like this in my church. Wow, this is incredible. And then they come on the night of the Sabbath and that night when they shake your hand, they look a little different. They look a little different. And then, you know, maybe the next night or whatever, they're not there. And then you go and check it out. And yeah, you know, my church, I'm happy with my church. You know, and I've got, you know, I'm gonna... what happened? You spoke to the heart. You understand? The heart, the, the avenue to the heart is the life. And, and until you have some level, yet there's a fine line, but until you have a level of specificity to what you're talking about, it's not generic. Once it touches the life, somebody is, have, they have to wrestle with God, see? And that's where real surrender begins to happen in the life. And that's what you want when you're bringing someone to a, you know, burial, right? Because baptism is burying the old 
and raising them to a new life. You don't want to bury anyone alive. So there needs to be evidence. We're talking about outward things, yes, but it's because we want them to give Jesus their heart. Now, when they give evidence, they're to be accepted. What's this next word? It's an important one. When they show that they are following the customs and fashions and sentiments of the world, they are to be, what's this? Faithfully dealt with. Um, I don't know if I have any more in my slides or not. I can't remember. But, but this phrase is one that Ellen White uses uh, fairly regularly when she's talking about um, dealing with new people in preparation for baptism or membership or what have you, just new converts. She talks frequently about uh, there to be faithfully dealt with. What is the implication of faithfully? When you say faithfully dealt with, what? Why? Why? Okay, there's responsibilities involved. Um, the idea of being faithful or faithfully dealt with it implies that it's not always easy, right? <laughs> That there's some, there's some opposition, there's some challenge there, and in order to do it, it requires faithfulness, right? <laughs> there's, a, there's a sense of, uh, you know, moxie that you need, right? A little bit of spine. You need to kind of be faithful. That's the idea here. Faithfully dealt with. You know, this is one of the biggest challenges for the Christian soul winner, is that you have to have spine and courage, and at the same time, you have to be tender and meek. And so, what happens with many is, they get spine and they're rough. Because it's natural. When you gather up and muster up the courage, you know, you can't do that. You know, you be, all of a sudden become a little rough. I like how Ellen White says it about Jesus. She says that uh, he never made the truth cruel. Isn't that an incredible statement? You know, you can actually make the truth cruel. So, but, it, but it's the natural thing that happens when, you, when, you, when it's not in you to want to do it, but you have to be faithful to do it, and you're mustering it all up, and you just naturally... It's sort of like the preaching uh, problem. If, if you've... Talk to a young minister, you'll find this is a very frequent problem. That when they get excited and passionate, they begin to look angry. Because there's a natural, there's a close link. That when you start to get passionate about something, it starts coming across in a non, you know, gentle way. It's normal. You try it sometime. It naturally happens. Or have you ever had to do that? Like you're in a, you're in a nominating committee? or you're in a, a business meeting and there's some issue and you know that you should take a stand. You know you should speak to it. And the nerves are just going and your stomach is ready. You're like, I know I should do it, but I don't want to do it. And your face all of a sudden is flushed and you're trying to figure out the strength to do it. And you raise your hand and you stand up and with quivering lips, you, I don't, you know, it doesn't come out right, right? Because nerves <laughs> tends to have that effect that it just, you struggle to keep your composure. This is one of the biggest challenges with preparing people for baptism and working with souls. Is that you're dealing with something that requires great courage and moxie, but at the same time 
requires great sympathy and gentleness. So you always got to keep that in the back of your mind. And if there's one thing you can do, read, um, read Steps to Christ in, uh, for instance, the chapter God's Love for Man, uh, the chapter, I'm trying to think of where it describes, somebody could look it up for me, how every soul was precious in his eyes, and it says that uh, he, he always spoke the truth, but there were, but there was scathing, or, or he gave scathing re rebukes, but there were tears in his eyes when he gave them, and that sort of thing. Read that passage and just kind of meditate on it. I mean, it's pretty powerful. Um, I remember early on in my experience when I uh, was feeling really, you know, emboldened, you know, to, to challenge some of the smooth liberal things that were happening in my local church. And so we had, I wrote this article or something in a newsletter, and it was pretty direct. I mean, it was... And uh, afterwards, you know, I thought I would feel... But I didn't. I felt like, did I, did I go too far? And I started, you know, really wrestling with it. And then I started reading in the books, in the book, uh, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. And in Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, it says this, No one was ever turned from a wrong position by censure or reproach. But listen to this. But many have thus been driven from Christ. And I can't tell you the reckoning that I had to have in that moment that not only was I potentially not helping, but I could very seriously have been driving people away from Christ. So, you know, it's a challenge, it's human, but we need to have the balance of justice and mercy. And we need to learn it. And we need to learn how to be faithful and not, not in any way compromise what we know to be right while at the same time doing our level best to be merciful. The way that some people fix it is they smile all the time. Like, you ever watch Mark Finley preach? You know, he'll be calling down the fires of hell. <laughs> and he's, you know, <laughs> he's smiling. In fact, my daughter, Kayla, when, my oldest daughter, when she was little, she always called him Mark Friendly. <laughs> she didn't mean it or anything. Like, she didn't know, but, she just, but I thought, how fitting for Mark Finley, you know? And my wife is now Mark Finley's secretary, just coincidentally. Yeah, Mark Friendly's secretary. So, faithfully dealt with. Yes, we must be faithful, but be careful. Be cautious in kind of your tone and in your spirit. Now, notice what it says. If they feel no burden to do what? Change their... So, you're not just talking about beliefs here. You understand? You know, when it's talking about these things, it's talking about course of action. If they don't feel a burden to change, they should not be accepted as members of the church. The Lord wants those who compose His church to be true, faithful stewards of the grace of Christ. So that's pretty important. We don't want to, um, if somebody is clearly not moving in the direction of the Word of God and they're just resisting it and saying, you know, I, and they're is not ready to make that decision, then they're probably not ready to be members yet. Yeah, because here's what happens. When you, when you baptize people and they're not quite ready, they're members of the church. You know? And then when they you know, hear about things, they start complaining, why are you, you know, and they, they've got their opinions and what have you. They've not 
actually ever fully you know, decided in favor of the Seventh-day Adventist principles and practices. So it makes it very muddy. You know, and, that's, and that's something I'm going to get to here in a moment, but that's the real risk that we run. Not only is it not in the best interest of the individual you're working with, but it's also not in the best interest of the church because there's very real risk to it. Yes? Well, keep in mind, what your purpose in the baptismal preparation process is not necessarily just to get them in the water. You're wanting to see them surrender to Christ, right? So this is a beautiful opportunity. I mean, let's look at it this way. Had they not said that they were interested in being baptized, you would not be in a position to be able to help them with their smoking habit. So, you know, you, you help them and you say, okay, we're going to do this. And the thing that I always explain to people who are in the process is, you know, it's not, uh, there's no special grace bestowed at the baptism. Like, it's not meritorious. It doesn't, it's not like the baptism is what ultimately is your ticket to heaven, okay? Because that takes a little of the pressure off. The idea is we're going through a process and you're right where the Lord wants you to be. And we're going to go through this process. The only time that that stops happening is if through the process, they end up giving up on the process and just, you know, letting it go. But, you know, if God forbid they got hit by a car and we weren't ready to baptize them because we were taking them through the process, I believe that the Lord will take all of that into account. And He knows exactly where they are. so, So, the idea is that we need to be going in the direction and being in harmony with the Lord's will for us at that time. And for many people, that's going through the process. It's not, the process is important, in other words. The actual surrender is important. The commitment is important. It's not just the water that is important. That's, that's, that's going to be the symbol of the rejoicing of what happened through the process. You understand? God would be better pleased to have six truly what? converted, six truly converted to the truth, than to have 60 make a nominal profession and yet not be thoroughly converted. Let's think about this statement for a moment. God would be better pleased to have six truly converted. It would be, it would be easy for us to read it in that way and miss the fact that it says converted to the truth. Because yes, they need to be converted. That's, that's you know, absolutely the case. But as Seventh-day Adventists living at the end of time, the truth and, and conversion involves embracing the three angels' messages. It involves embracing the message that's preparing for the coming of Jesus. So this is very important. When it says here, not be thoroughly converted, it's talking about not being thoroughly converted to the truth. You understand? And this means that there are many people, perhaps, that are partially converted to the truth. You know, and that's what we're many times hearing the argument for. Well, they already believe this, and they're coming on Sabbath, and they're it's just these few things, or what have you. And that's the idea that she's getting at, I believe, is that we need to... There's nothing... Uh, Whenever we talk about issues in the life that are preventing baptism, it's never that simple. It's always something a little bit deeper than that. And so we need to recognize that 
you know, there's no reason to rush this thing. We can take the time we need to make sure that they want to be Seventh-day Adventists. We want them to want to be Seventh-day Adventists. And notice that phrase, <laughs> a nominal profession. There, are, there is the ability to want to be Seventh-day Adventist in name, but not really accept the full nature of the truth. Now I want to show you something that is on a little bit of the flip side for a moment. There is one thing that we have no right to do. What is that? That is to judge another man's heart or impugn his motives. You know, um, assume the worst about his motives. But when a person presents himself as a candidate for church membership, we are to examine the fruit of his life and leave the responsibility of his motive with himself. Did you catch that? That's kind of what we were talking about earlier. But great care should be exercised in accepting members into the church. For Satan has his specious devices through which he purposes to crowd false brethren into the church, through whom he can work more successfully to weaken the cause of God. So let's look at this again. We can't impugn his motives. What is intended by this? In essence, what it's saying is that we can uh, see the fruit, but if the fruit is there, but we still question whether or not it's genuine, we don't really have a right to do that. You understand? This is why when some people talk about baptizing, let's say there's a teenager in your church and they come through the, you know, the, the band of teenagers that want to be baptized or whatever, and, and you're studying with them and they don't seem to you to have the hunger and interest that you could wish that they had. But they say, yes, I believe this. Yes, I believe this. Yes, I believe this. Yes, I'm ready to do this. Yes, I'm ready to do this. Yes, I'm ready to do this. I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I, I agree with all these things, and I'm ready to be baptized. You can challenge them. You can speak to the heart. You can try to provoke a deeper love for Christ and, a, and, a, and what have you. But if you still question whether or not there's sincerity there, it doesn't matter. You need to baptize them. Because you don't really know. You don't really have a right to do that. That's why we have these you know, practical areas that are you know, commanded by God, and if they're willing to do that, it doesn't mean that they're all right, but as far as our eyes know, that's all we can do and leave the responsibility of their motives to themselves. You understand? That's what it's saying. So we need to be careful not to try to guess what their motives are. But we are to examine the fruit. So it comes back to that. The only thing we can really see is the fruit of the life. And notice this part. Satan is at work. And he's trying to crowd false brethren into the church. Now I want you to think about what that's saying. That means, and, and obviously you've got to keep your thinking cap on here so you don't go crazy, but that means that there are times where the devil wants you to baptize somebody. And, and we are brought to the point of having to evaluate if they're actually ready. 
And these are people that the Lord Jesus loves, so it's not anything like that. And it could be that they'll be ready for baptism at some point, but at that point they're not, and to baptize them would not be good for the church. It's just like when Jesus came to Peter, and Peter said, oh, you know, don't do this. And he said, uh, get thee behind me, Satan. I mean, whew, that'd be a little jarring to hear, right? He didn't realize that that was happening. And I recently read about that, and it was beautiful to hear how... Uh, Ellen White described that notice that Jesus did not address Peter. You notice that? He addressed the devil. Like he had sympathy for Peter because he knew he knows the weakness of humanity. But he's telling that devil, <laughs> get behind me. I know what you're trying to do. Right? And get away from my servant. You understand? I mean, there was a clear sense in which the Lord knew that he did not wrestle with flesh and blood, and he knew what he was dealing with there. Um, and we need to recognize that just because someone is not ready or whatever, that doesn't make them a, you know, instrument of the devil or whatever, but it is also true that the devil unwittingly or works through people who unwittingly are not prepared and think they are, and who, if they were baptized into the church, could cause great harm. And how many times have we actually seen it? Many of the problems that occur in the church just may have been prevented if somebody had the proper uh, attention given to them in baptismal preparation and discipleship after baptism. In fact, um, we talk often about the process after baptism, you know, and refer to that discipleship training process as what we need to do in order to, you know, prevent people from leaving the church. But I am of a mindset that it's not just what we're not doing after baptism, but it's also what we're not doing before baptism that is causing people to leave the church. We can't expect someone to stay in a church that they were never committed to in the first place. And once they get in there, and once they, you know, I mean, that's part of the deal. We need to recognize that they're, it's, it's an honesty for them issue too. We want to make sure they feel comfortable with the church that they're joining and you know, if they're not ready to say, uh, you know, that's where I'm at, then we need to give them more time. The principles of the Christian life should be made plain to those who have newly come to the truth. Faithful Christian men and women should have an intense interest to bring the convicted soul to a correct knowledge of righteousness in Christ Jesus. If any have allowed the desire for pleasure or the love of dress to become supreme so that any portion of their mind, soul, and strength is devoted to selfish indulgences, the faithful believers should watch for these souls as they that must give an account. They must not neglect the faithful, tender, loving instruction so essential to the young converts that there may be no half-hearted work. So, no half-hearted work, but faithful, tender, loving instruction. And I believe that we have as our example Jesus in this. The Bible says, we have such a high priest who what? Anybody remember? He was tempted as we are, and right, who knows how to sympathize with our weaknesses. Okay, we have a high priest who's perfect, and yet he knows how to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have a high priest as an example for baptismal preparation. We need to know how to sympathize with people's weaknesses. And recognize 
you know, just like God does, that this is a process and we have their best interest in mind. When they're not ready, don't say no. I want you to understand something. I never have told someone who I was not going to baptize, no. But I will tell them, not yet. In other words, you're not, this is no cutoff. It's a, you know what, let's just take some more time. It sometimes, you know, I know for me, absorbing all this was difficult, and sometimes we just need time to wrestle through it. You may not agree on a couple of these points right now. Let's just kind of see what happens. And I'll sometimes tell them, look, we often have people who come to our church who maybe don't embrace everything that we believe is Seventh-day Adventist, but we're still you know, welcome in our fellowship, and they, you know, join us as part of the family. They not, may not be official members yet, but we accept and welcome everyone. And we would hope that you would feel just as welcome, and that you would continue to come, and that we would check back in just a little bit and see where you're at, and we could have the opportunity to continue studying. I always leave a wide open door and an open invitation to continue the process. I never just tell them no. And remember this, readiness for baptism is not your choice, per se. Because this is what they'll sometimes try to do to you. Pastor wouldn't baptize, that pastor wouldn't baptize me. Look, I'm dying to baptize you. I'm jumping out of my skin to baptize you. But I'm not going to baptize you until you are comfortable with the Seventh-day Adventist church beliefs and practices. So whenever you are ready to agree to the beliefs and practices of the Seventh-day Adventist church, I will be ready to baptize you. So it's your choice. I mean, this is what Seventh-day Adventists believe and practice. Now here's the problem that you run into. Somebody says, well, so-and-so in the church, they're a member, and I see them doing da-da-da. Right? Guess what? You're never going to get rid of that. So what are you going to do? Just not, not any longer bring the requirements of the gospel to bear upon somebody because there's other people? Are you going to kick, them, kick the other ones out? So I personally, I think that we're doing you know, the right thing, not entirely. But what I explain to people that I'm working with is, look, you're going to experience that. You're going to see that. I understand that. But here's what happens. When people make a decision to be baptized, we want to make sure that they... I mean, they're making the decision. We want to make sure they fully agree with the decision. Now, if after time, through temptation, through a change of heart, through whatever, they start taking on certain practices, we don't kick them out. I mean, we continue to educate. If they're doing certain things, they might not be in church leadership. But ultimately, we want to keep working with them and, and laboring with them. But just because someone else has begun to get confused on what the Bible teaches or, or is struggling, perhaps, per, in their personal life in some way, is no reason for us to not make a wholehearted surrender to Christ and, and, to, and to make sure we're doing that on the time that we're actually being baptized. And that's always going to be the case, that there will be people who are in the church who are doing things that you're wanting them to make decisions on, and it's part of life. They're going to recognize it. You know, it's part of life. But you need to make sure that you're not just ignoring what's happening in the church, 
Pastors should be educating on those things, continuing to labor with people in the church who are wrestling and struggling with things. But ultimately, we generally don't kick them out unless it's a grievous sin such as, um, you know, a, an unrepentant adultery or that sort of thing. You know, I had one um, lady who was um, wrestling, and she started pointing to some members. And I said, you know what, let me, let me tell you something. One of the things I know about you and your husband, I was studying with both of them, is that you are, you love the Lord and you are leader material. Like you, you have that type of courage. You have that type of mindset. The Lord's not calling on you to be the lowest common denominator. I can tell that's not what you want to be. You want to be all in for God. You want to be fully surrendered to God. You're always going to be able to find people to, to bring you down. Don't do that. You, that's not the kind of person you are. And you know, challenge them to realize that they don't have to, like, you know, Ellen White talks about how we should not see how far we can digress and yet be saved. Or transgress, or whatever it was she said. But the idea is, you know, we're not trying to just slide in just under the wire. And if we encourage people to, to be all that God has called them to be, they're much more responsive to that. And, and believe in people. Believe in people. That they're that kind of person. That that's the kind of person they want to be. And they will often respond well to that. I see your hand. People will sometimes get a conviction for baptism without a full conviction of the truth. I had one lady who saw a series of meetings, but she you know, zeroed in on the baptism one. It's like, I need to be baptized. She came to the church, said, I need to be baptized. Okay, well, let's study something. We started studying. Every time we <laughs> came to something like, you know, whether it was the Sabbath or tithe or whatever, she, oh, okay. You know, I mean, she, <laughs> she was, um, you know, not desirous of the commitments involved. But I'll tell you what, we were patient with her. We walked through it. She's still in the church today. Still, you know, I mean, you got to go through the process. And sometimes people don't start in the right place necessarily or with the right attitude. But if you're faithful and patient, then they often do. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.